Hey, good morning, Linworth. How's everyone doing out there? Can you guys hear me? Okay, can't hear myself. I'm getting old, I think I'm losing my hearing, so. <laughs> hey, let's go ahead and stand. And uh, before we get started here, I, I just wanted to help us warm up our hearts to the Lord, to the Holy Spirit, and uh, just wanted to share few verses out of his word in Psalm 92. Um, and I hope these words are inspiring to us this morning to sing out to God, to glorify God's name, to cry out to God, express praise and worship, adoration, affection, and also express needs that you have uh, with the Lord. Uh, worship is much a form of prayer as it is something that we just gather to do on Sunday morning. And so, um, yeah, this is Psalm 92. It says, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Think of the works of the Lord this morning, the works that God has done in your life, the works that God has done in others' lives, the works that God is doing in this church right now, and let it stir your affections for him and bring you joy. Let's lift our voices to the Lord. Will be with me. 
Amen.
to Thee. Uh, actually, sorry, I did this last week too. Why don't you turn and say hello to somebody? Kids, you can be released to your classrooms. And Alex will be up for announcements. Good morning, church. Good morning, church. Welcome to those of you that are with us and as well to uh, the faithful online. We're happy that you're part of our community and that you're participating with us today. Uh, if you are new and you're visiting with us, we would love to connect with you. We'd love for you to fill out our connect card. Uh, this is just a great way for us to communicate with you and for you to communicate with us. Uh, you also probably walked past our connections booth lobby in the lobby i mean um it's a great place for you to connect whether you've whether you're new here or you've been here for years and you want to get connected you want to talk to a pastor figure out information about small groups it's all right there you don't have to be new to get connected we'd love to connect with you now if you have any questions or comments or anything we do encourage you to fill out that connect card and for those of you that are online you can open up the bible app and you can find a digital copy in the bible app now I have just one announcement. It's a little robust today, so please bear with me. Next Sunday, May 29th, will be our celebration service. Now if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that on the Sundays that have a fifth Sunday, or the months that have a fifth Sunday, we do a celebration service. It's just our time to kind of share what is going on in the life of the church. This Sunday, we will celebrate endings and beginnings. It will also include baptisms and baby dedications. And for me personally, as the student ministries director here, this one's going to be exciting because we are going to celebrate and highlight our 2022 graduating seniors. So if you are a 2022 graduating senior, please contact me. My email address is listed uh, in the Bible app. You can also find it around or you can just come up and say hi and we'll talk. Um, but also, moving on to the, the other new beginnings, Caleb Miller, whom you met last week, he led with David Root, has accepted 
the position of being our new worship director. Now, yes, yeah, clap for Caleb. Um, now, if you, if you know, we have searched a long time. We believe that Caleb is an answer to prayers. Uh, on a personal note, he was in our youth group for a little bit and led worship multiple times over the couple years that he was with us. So I know him pretty well and I'm, I'm very excited about this. But that also means that Pastor Lashivo's next Sunday will be his last Sunday as our worship director. Now, we understand as church culture that although it has been a lengthy process for us on staff, you know, being in the weeds and, and meeting with people, interviewing and stuff, this might seem abrupt for you as the congregation. So what we'd love for you to do is just invite you to read once again, Pastor Chris's comments that were emailed yesterday. If you have any questions or anything you'd like to talk about it, please talk to us. We'd love to, to be there with you and for you during this transition. Now, moving on to a very exciting thing. As you know, on the fourth Sundays, we highlight our ministry partners. Now, normally we show a video, but today we have the pleasure of having one of them live and in person with us. Allow me to introduce to you Angelica Ricci. Clap. Yeah. Give it up for Angelica. Come on up, Angelica. Now, Angelica is currently serving with unreached people groups in the Middle East in partnership with YWAM. Angelica, can you give us a look into the window?
arrived at an answer to the most important issue that we humans ever deal with, is there a God? And I had arrived there without ever really looking at the evidence. And I was supposed to be a scientist. gotten many of the things that I thought I wanted. You know, my girlfriend was on the cover of magazines, I had a Beamer, and I was so unhappy. It was a realization maybe that I would, I would never find happiness where I was looking for. for so many years, you know, I always just strived to be strong in myself. All I needed was me and my buddies and, you know, would be like invincible. But the truth is, none of us are. And I found purpose, I found meaning, I found hope. God took something so broken and made it a beautiful art piece. Alpha is a place where you can be yourself. You can say what you think and challenge everything. Now, no question is too complex or too simple. And what your point of view is, is as important as anyone else's. We are going on a journey together, an adventure to explore the questions of life, faith, and meaning. Morning. How many of you have watched an Alpha video before? Okay, quite a few of you. If you've ever seen one, you know they are very, very well made. And the reason we showed that trailer is because Discover Life is right around the corner, beginning July 27th, going through August 10th, three consecutive Wednesday evenings. Now, for those of you who are new, Discover Life is an annual outreach that we do here at Linworth. This will be our fourth time that we've done it. Um, how many of you have participated in Discover Life? Just curious. Okay, I see hands here, but I see a lot of hands that are not up. Okay, well Discover Life is an outreach that we do for the whole church. It, this is an opportunity where the whole church can come together and partner in the gospel each of us using the gifts that God has given us, the talents that he's given us. And you might think, well, you know, evangelism's not my thing, but no, this is for everybody. And the reason why is because all of us have people that God has placed in our life that need to hear about Jesus, okay? And so this is for everybody. Now, we begin the Discover Life evening by uh, providing a very nice meal. We come together, we eat a meal, we show an alpha video. As you can see, they are well made, and the video is designed to introduce our unbelieving friends to Jesus. After the video, we have a discussion where the people that you invite, they can ask any question they want, or they can just sit there and listen. There's no pressure that night. Um, but this is an excellent, excellent opportunity for us to invite neighbors, 
friends, co-workers, classmates, family members, anyone who God has placed on your heart that you have a burden for because you know they're lost and they need Jesus. Now, one thing I've learned when it comes to evangelism, we don't get very far unless it's covered with prayer. In fact, if we don't pray, there's not gonna be a lot that happens. But I've seen when people come together and pray and they ask God to do something in the area of evangelism, God does amazing, amazing things. So prayer is where we begin. When you came in this morning, you should have got two Discover Life prayer cards. You can take that out now if you'd like to. And you'll see that, that on the back it says, I am praying for, and you've got a space there for f up to five names. Now what we'd like you to do is prayerfully consider whom God has placed in your life. Could be, as I said, a neighbor, a, a, a co-worker, anyone that God has placed in your life, you'd like them to hear about Jesus. You'd like them to hear the gospel. And so list them on each card. You have put the same names on both cards. You have two cards because what we want you to do is we want you to turn the one card into the office. And if you can remember, please put your name on it as well, along with the people that you want to pray for and invite to Discover Life. Turn it into the office. That way, during staff meetings and elder meetings, we can join in with you praying for these people that you've placed on your card. Take the second card and put it somewhere at home where you'll see it every day as a reminder to pray for these people every day. Um, put it somewhere where you'll see it. I know if I put it on the refrigerator, I'll see it at least a dozen times because that's how many times I'm in the fridge, okay? So put it somewhere where you'll see it as a reminder to pray for these people. Um, now, pray that God will open a door of opportunity for you to develop a deeper relationship with him this summer. That way, when you invite them to discover life and you've prayed for them, they'll come. God will draw them here. Pray that you'll have an opportunity to share your testimony with them or an opportunity to share the gospel. Pray that when you invite them, that they come. And let me tell you, I can guarantee you that when they come, they'll have a fun evening. They'll experience a great meal. Um, they will, uh, we, we make it fun. We have a raffle at the end. We give out gifts. But most importantly, they will hear a clear presentation of the gospel. They'll hear about Jesus, and they'll hear it in a very winsome and um, a very uh, non-condemning way. Because after all, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn us. He came into the world to save us. And that's our goal, to see people saved and to be brought into the kingdom and to mature in Christ. You know, Jesus said that when just one person repents and comes to believe in him, all of heaven rejoices. And when we partner together in the gospel, we share in that joy. And we need people that can cook, serve food, administration, can sit at the table and just discuss things with the people that come. Look, this is for everybody. And, and you might say, well, I'm not evangelist. That doesn't matter. We've got plenty of things that where everyone can bring the gifts that God has given them, and we can all invite people, and we can all pray for people. 
So it's a great opportunity, and I, I hope you'll take advantage of it. Well, if you have any questions at all about Discover Life, feel free to contact me or Dale Schuler, or you can call into the office, see one of the pastors. We'll get you all the information you need. Okay? There'll also be uh, announcements, uh, uh, future announcements coming, and you'll want to check out uh, and uh, see how you can be involved. Okay, well, now we're going to have Pastor Nick come up, and he is going to finish our series in Titus this morning. Thank you, Pastor Mike. It's good to see you. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here as well this morning. Hope you're having a good weekend so far. Um, as Mike just said, we're going to wrap up uh, this short little series that we've been in, uh, where we've been looking at this uh, New Testament letter uh, that we call the book of Titus. And one of the main things that we have seen in this series, and one of the main themes in this book is that not only does what we believe as Christians matter, but how you and I live and treat others also matters. And as I was thinking about that this week, and as I was thinking about today's passage, I, I, I was reminded of a scene from the movie Top Gun. Now, I know last week, if you were here, Pastor Chris kind of butchered that a little bit when he was talking about some of us in the office being excited about this new sequel that's coming out. I think he said something about Die Hard or something. Uh, and I had to correct him from the front row and say, no, Chris, it's Top Gun. Maverick is coming out. And look, I don't know if anyone else is excited about this, but, but I am. And uh, the reason for that is because when I was a kid, we had a taped off the TV version of Top Gun. Now, if you're under 35, basically what I mean when I say we had a taped off the TV version is it was kind of an old school way of doing DVR. You see, when a, a movie or a show was coming on that you really wanted to own, um, what you would do is you'd set up your VHS player, which I don't have time to explain that, but uh, you would get a, a blank tape, you would put it in the VHS player, and when the show was about to come on, you'd hit record, and then you'd have to stop it. And, and again, maybe that sounds crazy to you with all the technology that we have today, um, but in the end, it basically did the same thing as, as DVR. And so again, when I was a kid, we had uh, the movie Top Gun this way, and, and, and what that also meant, uh, that because it was a, off the TV version, is that it was slightly edited to take out any bad words or uh, any racy scenes, which is why when I saw the unedited version years later, I was a little surprised. Um, <laughs> I guess a PG rating in the 1980s meant something very different than it does today. So, you know, be careful out there, parents. Um, but anyway, the scene that I thought about this week as I was preparing for this message is a, a scene pretty early on in the movie where uh, Tom Cruise's character Maverick and his buddy Goose are, are being told that they're gonna have the opportunity to go to Top Gun, this elite fighter pilot school. But, but before their commanding officer tells them that news, he first spends a few minutes rebuking them um, with some pretty colorful language, and, and specifically rebuking Maverick for his bad behavior. But then he says to him this, your family name ain't the best in the Navy. You need to be doing it better and cleaner than the other guy. Now, what is it with you? Now, I'm sure you're sitting there thinking, why in the world did you think of that scene? And what does that have to do with the book of Titus? Well, again, as I said earlier, one of the major themes of this book is the importance of doing good works, and how our behavior and our actions as Christians can either point people towards Jesus and towards the gospel, or our behavior and our actions can turn people away from it, especially when they don't see us live out what it is that we say 
we believe. And unfortunately, like Maverick and Top Gun, many have argued and, and many have pointed out that our family name, the church, ain't the best right now. And I think you could argue that there is a need for us to be doing it better and cleaner than we have been. You see, we entitled this series, The Power of Doing Good, and that is absolutely right. When the church of Jesus Christ is at its best and is loving others well and is focused on the kingdom of God and not on other things, then it really is the most powerful force for good in our world. But conversely, when it's not doing that, it does great damage to the witness of the church and to the reputation of Jesus. And it's clear as we come to this last chapter in the book of Titus that this was one of Paul's main concerns for the churches that were on the island of Crete. In fact, one commentator summarized this last chapter by saying this. He said, in this section, Paul reminds Titus yet again of the high priority he attaches to a faith that moves decisively beyond assent to certain teachings to tangible and effective response to God and his word by zeal for good works. God's saving work has direct implications for how believers behave in the world. And so with that said, I want you to invite you now to go ahead and open your Bibles to Titus chapter three. Um, if you need to borrow a, a chair or a pew Bible, it's on page three or uh, 998. And once you find it, go ahead and stand as I read uh, today's passage. Again, Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes this. He says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we do invite you into this morning time. Thank you that you're already here. Holy Spirit, would you come? 
Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to know and to obey the word of God? And so again, we thank you for what you have for us. We thank you for the scriptures. Pray you would illuminate them now to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and take a seat. Um, Our outline to kind of keep us on track and to help us walk through the passage today will, will be very simply four points or four movements out of the passage, which are this. Number one, a reminder in our relationships. Number two, a reason and a resource for obedience. Number three, a ruling on those who rebel. And then lastly, we'll look at a final request and remark. And so starting with this first point in our outline, a reminder in our relationships, look again here at verse one. Again, Paul writes this, he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Okay, so Paul starts off this third chapter here with a reminder, which implies that these are things that he has already communicated to them before. And yet, based on their behavior, the need, uh, they have a need to be reminded of them again. I mean, it's a little bit like with my uh, four small kids. I, I, I've gotten into this habit lately of when we're coming home late at night um, and it's already well past their bedtime, um, before we even pull into our neighborhood and, and certainly before we get into the driveway, I, I say to them, now kids, when we get home, I want you to go straight upstairs to the bathroom. I want you to brush your teeth, go potty, get in your PJs and get in your beds. Now, no joke, I probably say that exact sentence on average about once a week, and lately it's been more than that because it's just, for whatever reason, we've had a lot going on. Now, those uh, instructions um, are are very basic. They're very clear. They're very simple. Uh, They should be intuitive, right? Because you do that every night, for at least if you're a little kid. Um, You do that every night before bed. And yet, it's very hard for my kids to remember, or maybe more specifically, to obey. And because of that, I'm having to continually remind them and to set an expectation for them of what their their mom and I expect when we get home late. And in the same way, Paul here is reminding the believers in Creed about how they should treat others. And the two main groups or the two main relationships that I think Paul has in mind here are, are first off, governmental authorities. But also, I think he also has in mind non-Christians as well. And the reason I think he singles out those two groups is because those are people that we are quick to disrespect and to fight against. And really, when you look at Paul's letters, this is something that that he addresses over and over again. And part of the reason for that is I, I think part of it is because Paul was writing these letters in the days of the Roman Empire. And from what we know about it, it was it was a governmental system which was full of all kinds of injustice and oppression. And the island of Crete, where these churches were located, that, that Paul was writing this to, um, they were somewhat of a poster child for that. In fact, in describing Crete, the Greek historian Polybus said it was impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. So not only was the Roman Empire in general bad in this regard, but according to uh, this quote here, Crete was exceptionally bad at this. 
And yet, it is in this context that Paul tells the believers here that they are to be submissive and obedient to their rulers and authorities. Now, I know for us as Americans, that kind of language and these types of verses are are somewhat hard for us uh, to, to swallow, right? Like we're a nation that was founded on overthrowing our rulers and authorities rather than submitting to them. And we could debate some other time whether or not that was or wasn't justified biblically, But what we do see here and in other places in the New Testament is that as Christians, our basic default in terms of both our attitude and our actions towards those in governmental authority is one of submission, obedience, and respect. Now, to be fair, it's hard to talk about this or to bring this up without dealing with a few exceptions or a few instances when civil disobedience is justified. Clearly, when we look at the Bible as a whole, we do see that there are several instances of civil disobedience. Whether it's the Hebrew slaves in the days of Moses who refused to, to kill the newborn babies, the new, uh, the, the new Israelite babies, or whether it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, getting thrown into the fiery furnace because they refused to worship a false god. Or in that same book, Daniel getting thrown into the lion's den because he uh, refused to stop praying based on uh, an edict or a law that came out. Or whether we come to the New Testament and we see John and Peter getting thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. It's clear that according to the Bible, there are times when obeying God means disobeying uh, governmental authority. However, though, even with that said, When we look at the Bible and when we look at those instances of justified civil disobedience, there are a couple of things that I want to point out. First, in each of those cases, there was a command by those in authority to do evil. In other words, it wasn't just that a particular government permitted things that were evil, but there where the line was crossed is that they commanded followers of God to participate in that evil action. And because they were being told that they had to participate in something that God elsewhere had said was wrong, the only option that they had was to obey God rather than man, which is exactly what Peter and John tell those, uh, those in authority in the book of Acts when questions about their civil disobedience. Um, as Francis Schaeffer in his book, A Christian Manifesto stated, he said this, the bottom line is that at a certain point, there is not only the right, but the duty to disobey the state. And I would 100% agree with that. But the other thing that I wanna point out in those biblical examples is that in each of those cases, the followers of God were nonviolent in their disobedience. And not only were they nonviolent, they were also willing to endure unjust suffering and persecution for their decision. And with that said, I just wonder how many of us have been shaped by our American legacy and our American heritage rather than our Christian one. Not only have there been multiple examples, including recently of believers committing civil disobedience for unbiblical reasons, but there have also been in our history examples of so-called Christians using violence in the midst of that. Now we could really go down a rabbit hole here and I'm sure I could get myself in a whole lot of trouble and the emails would come flying in. (laughs) And, and, but we're not gonna do that. But these things are complex. 
Right, like even here in Angelica talk this morning, these things are complex and I'm sure our brothers and sisters in the Middle East or our brothers and sisters in in, uh, the Ukraine or our brothers and sisters in Venezuela could help us understand just how difficult this really is. But what I'm trying to point out this morning is what Paul emphasizes here in these first two verses. And that is this, as Christians, our basic default in terms of both our attitude and our actions towards those in governmental authority is one of submission, obedience, and respect. And in those cases where the government does command us to commit evil ourselves, then and only then, nonviolent civil disobedience is, as Schaefer said, not only permissible, but is our duty. And I would just like to say, if this is something you have never studied before or thought much about, then I would strongly encourage you to do so. Because this is not an area where you and I can afford to let the culture uh, shape and disciple us in this. No, this is an area where you and I must let the scriptures teach us and instruct us in these things. And so in terms of uh, our first point here, what we see is that Paul reminds Titus and he reminds the Christian, uh, the, uh, Christian believers to be submissive to their rulers and authorities. But, but not only that, It seems to me that he has a a more broad audience in mind as well, because in verse two, he says, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, as I said earlier, I think Paul has in mind here mostly non-Christians. And the reason I say that is because in the very next verse, he is going on to uh, remind them of what they were like before Christ. And so it seems to me that he is trying to help the Christians view and treat non-Christians in a sympathetic and in a godly way. And what we see here in verse two is that Paul gives us two negatives and, or, or two don'ts, but then he gives us two positives or two do's. In other words, he gives us two things that you and I are not to do, but then he gives us two things that we are to do. And with that, one of the things that struck me in terms of what Paul lays out here is that mostly what he, what he talks about has to do with our speech. Again, he says, speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy. You see how you and I talk to and talk about non-Christians really does matter. We are to treat them with respect. We are to show them compassion, not contempt. When they uh, curse us or malign us, we are not supposed to respond with the same manner, but instead we are to bless them. Jesus in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about this issue over and over again. For example, in Matthew chapter five, verse 43, Jesus said this, he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the rain or the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You see, what Jesus and Paul are both getting at here is that our behavior and our treatment of others, especially those who don't like us, who disagree with us, it should be significantly different than those who don't know Jesus. 
And yet, unfortunately, as the church, as believers, our track record in this is not great. Instead, I think it's easy for you and I to slip into a us versus them mentality. And when we do that, what happens is that we cease to have compassion for non-Christians. And instead, we begin to have contempt towards them. And so again, because of this, Paul has to give Titus and the Christian believers and us as well, a reminder of how you and I are to act in our relationships and how we are to treat others. But let's go now to that next point in our outline, and that is this, a reason and a resource for obedience. Look at verse three. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You see what Paul is doing here by using the word for is that he is linking what he just said in verses one and two with verse three. In other words, in verses one and two, Paul reminds us of how we are to treat those in authority and also those who don't know Christ. And then he says the basis for that is because we ourselves used to be in that same position. We were once foolish. We were once disobedient and led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were full of envy and malice and hate. You see what Paul is doing here is he is humbling us. He's reminding us of what you and I were like before grace broke in. And in doing so, I think he is giving us a reason for why we should obey verses one and two. Um, Tim Chester in his commentary on Titus, he said this. He said, we live in a world of people who are foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, living in malice and envy and hating and hated. So it is very tempting to withdraw from that world or to look down on that world. Christians can find unbelievers scary. We find it much more comfortable spending time with fellow Christians. Meanwhile, we tell one another our stories of the appalling behavior of people in the big bad world outside. But Paul says, that's what you were like too. And it was only grace that saved you from that. And it's only grace that keeps you from that. We have no basis for feeling smug or superior. This is what we were like. So again, Paul is humbling us here. He's reminding us of what we were like, but not only that, he continues in verse four and he begins to describe in amazing detail the gospel message, much like he did at the end of chapter two. And with that, I think Paul is giving us not only a reason for obedience, but he's showing us the resource and the power that you and I have for obeying. Now, Pastor Chris talked about this a lot last week in his message. And if you missed that, I would encourage you just to go back and, and to watch that on our website. But again, what, what we see here in verse four is he says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now, that is one of the most dense sentences in all of the Bible. And I'm going to do my best to unpack it quickly, but, but there's no doubt that a whole teaching series could be devoted to just verses four and five, or to, or to those just four or five verses in that section. Now, what we see Paul doing here is something that we see him do all the time in his writings. And that is this, he, is, uh, he links and he connects commands and imperatives with gospel declarations. In other words, Paul never divorced or separated what we are to do from whom we have become through the gospel. The gospel and what happens to us in it is the resource which enables you and I to obey God's commands. That's why you get a book like Romans where Paul will spend the first 11 chapters laying out and explaining the gospel. And then he finally transitions for those last five to go on to tell uh, us how we are to live then. Or another example would be the book of Ephesians where Paul does the same thing. He spends the first three chapters laying out and explaining the gospel. And then he spends the last three telling us how to live in light of the gospel. Now, coming back to our passage here in Titus, don't you just love that first word there in verse four, the word but. You see, Paul spent verse three reminding us of who we were before Christ, before grace, all of the wretchedness and the hopelessness that came with that. But thankfully, that was not the end of our story. Again, verse four says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. Again, that word, but in the scriptures is often a glorious and a hope-filled word. We were deceived. We were foolish. We were slaves to sin, but something happened. But someone intervened, but he saved us. In verse three, Paul shows us our need for salvation. In verse four, he shows us the source of our salvation. And now in verse five, he shows us the ground or the basis of our salvation. And what is that? Well, look what he says. He says, he saved us. How? Why? Why did he save us? How did he do it? Well, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So what is the basis? What is the ground of, of our salvation? Well, Paul makes it clear here. It has nothing to do with us. As one guy I read this week, he said, well, what is our part in salvation? Well, I did all the sinning and he did all the saving. He went on, he said, I'm not in verse, uh, I'm not in verse four and he's not in verse three. You'll have to look at the verses to see why that's significant. As the old hymn writer said, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We are saved by grace and grace alone. Salvation is an act of mercy. It is not a reward or an act of merit. If you and I were asked the question, God accepts me because blank, how would you answer that? 
Well, again, if your answer to that question sounds nothing like what Paul just said, then you're barking up the wrong tree, as they say. Again, we are saved not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his own mercy. Now, I said earlier that the gospel is the resource which gives us the power to obey. And the reason for that is because of what Paul goes on to say here in the rest of the section. Again, at the end of verse 5, he says that God saved us by his own mercy. But then he talks about some of the effects of that salvation. Again, he writes, he says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, what that verse is getting at is that in the salvation process, something happened to us. Not only are we forgiven of our sin, not only are we justified or declared righteous, as it says in verse 7, not only are we uh, now heirs of eternal life, as it also says in verse 7, but, but something happened to us inside. We were actually changed. You see, by the power of the Holy Spirit at salvation, you and I were regenerated and renewed. In the language of Jesus in John chapter 3, we were born again. In other words, who we are after salvation is not who we were before salvation. You see, before salvation, our ability to genuinely love and obey God was not possible. But now, after receiving salvation through the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I can actually have lives that love God genuinely and that obey Him. That's exactly what uh, the book of Ezekiel in chapter 11 promised and prophesied to us. In that passage, God says there, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Why? That they may walk in my statues and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. See, this passage in Titus makes it clear that you and I are not saved by our good works. In fact, without Christ and without the Spirit, our good works are like filthy rags. But at the same time, the passage also makes it clear that if you and I do know Jesus, if we have been regenerated, then good works and obedience are expected to be seen in our lives. As someone famously said, good works are not the root of our salvation, but they are the fruit of our salvation. I mean, again, look at what Paul writes in verse 8. He says, the saying is trustworthy. What saying? All this stuff I just said about the gospel. And I want you to insist on these things. Why? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And so again, here we see the uh, a reason and a resource for obedience, for living out these good works. Let's go to that third point in our outline, which is this, a ruling on those who rebel. Look at verse nine. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are, are, they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Okay, so I told you earlier that the word but is an awesome and glorious word, and certainly in verse four it is. Here though, we see Paul using it to contrast 
one set of behavior over and against another. In verse 8, he tells Titus and all the believers to be careful to devote themselves to good works. Because doing so, these things are excellent and profitable. But now, here he switches his focus and he tells us what not to do. And in doing so, he also tells us how to handle those who disobey or who rebel against this. Again, he says, look, guys, I want you to avoid foolish controversies, to avoid genealogies and dissensions, to avoid quarreling with others about the law. Why? Because doing those things is unprofitable. It's worthless. Now, as I pointed out in week two of this series, we don't know exactly all of the issues or the problems that were occurring in this church. But again, it is clear from uh, the letter that there was some sort of, of Jewish element to the false teaching that was going on. It's also clear from this letter that, that these things were impacting the church's beliefs and behaviors. And so because of this, Paul is, is issuing some strong commands and warnings here. And he also is laying out for us a process for dealing with someone who refuses to repent and to obey. And essentially what we see him do here is he lays out a process that is very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 18 as it relates to church discipline. When someone is caught in sin, when someone is acting in a way that is ungodly, there is a process in the church for confronting them and for pointing out their errors and then giving them a chance to repent. Now, unfortunately, if someone refuses to repent and to change, then it is necessary to take this more dramatic step. In Matthew 18, Jesus calls it uh, treating them as, a, as, a, as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Here, Paul says, have nothing more to do with them. This is what the church has historically called excommunication. And the basic notion of it is that uh, this person is no longer welcome in the faith community or welcome to take the Lord's Supper until they have repented and been restored. And I know by and large, uh, words like church discipline and excommunication have a bad rap in our society. And I'm sure that there are tons of cases where this has been done poorly and unjustly. But even still, what we see here is that it is necessary sometimes as part of God's call on the church to do this. And the heart behind it or the goal of it is to wake someone up and to help them see their sin and their error. And therefore, the goal of it is to cause them to repent. In other words, church discipline is not punitive for punitive sake. Rather, when done well and done biblically, it is an act of love. It is meant to restore someone, not exclude them forever. And so this is the ruling that Paul gives on those who rebel. Let's go to that fourth and final point, which is this, a final request and remark. Look at verse 12. He says, when I send Artemis or Tychus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicolopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Which, by the way, that reminds me, Angelica, will you greet your friends where you're at with us from Columbus, Ohio, and tell them we love them and are praying for them? Um, 
as you said, we are one body around the world, and, and that saying hi and hello is one way we can do that. Um, okay, so Paul ends his letter here with a final request and one last remark. And what we see is that he's, he's planning on sending two guys to the island of Crete in order to relieve Titus of his pastoral duties there. And after those guys get there, Paul wants Titus to join up with him at Nicopolis, which according to scholars was some 300 miles away and would take about five to 10 days by ship, depending on the weather. He also mentions in this last section that, that two other people will be coming through Crete. And he asks Titus to make sure that, that he takes care of them and, and make sure that they have all that they need. But then in verse 14, he comes back to this main theme again. This, this theme that he has been hammering on over and over throughout the letter. And he says, he says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. I mean, it's like Paul just can't let this good works theme go. It is run throughout the entire letter. And even as he finishes up here and gives a final practical request and sends some greetings to some, some friends, he still slips in one last plea, one last imperative around doing and devoting ourselves to good works. You see, in describing good works earlier, Paul spent a lot of time talking about how we treat others and specifically how we talk to and talk about them. Here, though, he emphasizes good works which help and bless those who are in urgent need. And as I was thinking about that this week, and as I was thinking about our own church, I was just so proud and so thankful that this is something that I see in us, I see us doing. You see, we are by no means a perfect church. And I know that there are ways that you and I need to grow in terms of devoting ourselves to good works and, and being careful how we talk to and about others, specifically non-Christians and those in authority. But at the same time, in terms of helping those in urgent need, I, I can point to dozens and dozens of examples of us doing this well. Whether it's the work of our deacons who help those in urgent need, whether it be physical or financial or vocational uh, who need help. For example, our benevolence ministry, which is part of our deacons, it has helped many and many people throughout the years who find themselves in a place of need, who are in over their head and need some support and help from helping people pay for Christian counseling that they desperately need but can't afford to helping people with, with again, maybe medical bills or other bills that, that they can't pay. As well, our food pantry is another good example of us doing this kind of work of supplying food for those who are in need. Not just that, but, but think of all the work that we've done over the years with helping refugees. From renting an apartment for, for many years at Whispering Oaks so that we could tutor refugee kids or, or do ESL for their parents out of the apartment. Or even recently when we raised money to help uh, get people out of Afghanistan who were, were trying to get out, but, but we needed to raise money in order to do that or, or to help feed people who got stuck there. Or even just a couple months ago when our cross crew kids raised, uh, I think it was around $2,000 to help orphans in Ukraine these are examples of us doing this. As well as a church, we have sent out many short-term mission trips to places where, that are needy for the gospel. And if I counted right, Dale can correct me later, but I, I think we currently support 14 different missionaries monthly uh, financially. We've planted multiple churches around our city and in other places. 
Um, for many years, we ran a free medical clinic, which provided basic medical care for those in need. And, and on and on, I could go. And so again, I'm so proud of this church. And I just want to encourage us to look for even more ways to bless our city and our state and our world. And as we move to close here, I just want to just take a minute and think a little bit more of this idea, which was our tagline in the series, the power of doing good. You know, recently I, I picked up a book that was very fascinating on church history called Water from a Deep Well by Gerald Sitzer. And in the book, Sitzer basically walks through the different centuries of the church, going from the very early Christian martyrs in the first and second century, all the way up to the modern missionary movement in like the 1800s with guys like Hudson Taylor and C.T. Studd. And for each group or for each generation, he kind of picks one word to describe the best of what they left or the, the legacy that they left for the church. And I'm not very far into the book, but, but earlier this week, I was reading about the early church in the second and third century in the Roman Empire. And there's no doubt that that, that generation was a testimony of the power of doing good. And what's so amazing about that is that at that time, the church was relatively small. They were small in number, and yet their influence was quite large, such that many Roman leaders and, and those who were in positions of power took notice of them. For example, in the book, he, he talks about this guy named Pliny the Younger. How would you like that name? Pliny the Younger, um, who was a governor uh, in one of the Roman provinces. And Pliny wrote this letter to a guy named Trajan, who was the Roman Empire, to get some advice from him on how to deal with this growing problem that he was having in his area, uh, this menace to society known as the Christian movement. And in that letter, one of the things that Pliny complained about is that, number one, Christians were messing with and disturbing his economy because of their commitment to Jesus. And the reason for that is because as people would become new converts to Christianity, they would stop visiting the pagan temples and making sacrifices there, which led to a significant amount of, of loss in revenue. The second thing that Pliny complained about in that letter was that they were forming what he called political uh, clubs, which was the best word that he could use to describe the Christian church. And that as part of their community, they were doing all of these crazy things like caring for the sick, providing hospitality, burying the dead, supporting widow Christianity and the church, that he actually intentionally arrested some people who had been accused of being a Christian um, so that he could torture them in order to find out some more information. And with that, Sitzer goes on to say this, Pliny discovered that Christian belief and practice departed sharply from the cultural norm. He discovered that women held positions of leadership in the church and that, all, uh, that people of all kinds appeared to be welcomed into the community. He also learned that Christians met in the early morning to worship Christ as to a God, an astonishing observation about early Christian belief considering the pagan source. Finally, he observed that they followed a strict moral code and met often for a sacred meal. Now, Sitzer goes on in that chapter to talk about just how unhappy Pliny was by all of this, and how he went on uh, to go out of his way to, to try to persecute and to destroy the church. And so just a word of caution here as we talk about good works. Um, good works don't always cause the government or society at large to love you or to applaud you. However, though, it is clear that the church at this time was winning lots of people to Jesus because of their distinct... He called them in that chapter a, a peculiar people. 
because of their distinctiveness and the good works that flowed out of their lives. People were drawn to the church community because of the good that they saw in their community. Um, later on, Sitzer mentions another guy uh, who was an Athenian philosopher who lived in the second century. And this man also listed several positive attributes that distinguished Christians from the rest of the population, including things like they modeled fidelity, truthfulness, contentment, respect for parents, love for neighbor, purity, patience in the face of persecution and kindness to strangers. He also mentions that they also took care of widows and orphans, that they treated slaves with unusual kindness. He also says that they took care of the poor and that if someone was lacking in food, the believers would fast for two or three days in order to supply food for that person. And so it wasn't like that, you know, they were all super affluent and, you know, upper middle class people who could just give out of their abundance. No, it required sacrifice, right? Like someone went hungry for two or three days in order to provide food for someone in need. Now, there are many other examples that I could give from that book, but what I'm hoping that you see from all of this and what I'm hoping you understand is, is just how important and how uh, powerful our good works are to a watching world. This is what we have been called to. This is what we have been saved for. Again, the, the title of today's message was saved in order to do good. And not only do we see that here in the book of Titus, but really this is something that is emphasized all throughout the New Testament, including uh, Ephesians chapter two and specifically verses eight through 10. Uh, First Peter two talks a ton about it. Um, again, Jesus talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five, when he talked about us as the church being the salt of the earth, the, the light to the world. Again, this is a major theme that we see run throughout the scriptures. And as I said earlier, I see uh, areas in our church where we are doing this really well. And I wanna encourage us to keep doing it and to look for even more ways to bless our city and our world. But at the same time, I do see areas of concern, primarily in, in some of those categories that we talked about earlier in terms of submitting to authority and being careful of how we talk to and about non-Christians. You see, in the midst of all of this political and cultural upheaval that we're living in, we must not let the church, as the church, we must not lose our love and our compassion for those who don't know Jesus. And we must reject any sense of an us versus them mentality, but rather let us follow Jesus, our savior, and let him be our example, the, the example that he set while walking on the earth. And what was that example? Well, he engaged those who were far from God. He showed compassion to those who were in need. And ultimately, he gave his life for his enemies. And may you and I go and do the same. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we desperately need, we need you to live this out. God, as that passage in Ezekiel talks about, we cannot obey you without your spirit, without that, that new heart, without that, that being born again thing. But with you, Lord, we're able to, to be a blessing to our city, our state, and our world. 
And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to do that, Lord. Help us to stop being distracted. Help us to be the church, the, the, the people of God, the ones that you have called us to be. Lord, we do, just I, so moved by Angelica's story, Lord, we do, uh, we, we thank you and we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are having to live all of this out under immense pressure and persecution. Jesus, would you strengthen them? Would you give them boldness? Would you give them courage? And Lord, would you help us as the American church to be humble and to, to look for ways to, to support them? Would you help us to be humble to learn from them, Lord, when, when and if that day comes that we ourselves find, our, find ourselves being persecuted for our faith? Help us to learn from those who have already lived it. But God, like uh, the, those believers in the second and third century, help us to be a force of good in our world. Help us to, to be that, that salt of the earth. Help us to be that light of the world, that city on a hill, so that those can see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Jesus, I thank you for the ways that I see that in our church, but I pray that you would show us more ways that we can do this, both in our individual lives and collectively as a body. Pray this all in Jesus' name.
It's actually funny, I saw a funny meme this week of uh, like Sunday school teachers when the sermon goes long and it looks pretty threatening. So maybe parents, you wanna go pick those kids up more promptly than maybe normal, uh, help them out there. Uh, but again, thank you for being here. Um, hopefully you were able to connect with, uh, connect with the Lord through the service. Um, if you have anything going on that you would like prayer for, there'll be members of our prayer team down here, uh, down here in front. And we'd invite you to come down and to ask for prayer, to receive prayer. Um, 
Next week, again, is our celebration service. I don't know if Alex mentioned, I can't remember, but um, we are going to do a little cake reception after the service back in the Fellowship Hall uh, for Pastor Nick and uh, just honoring him and his time of serving as our our worship pastor. And so be sure to stick around for that. Um, Let's close now with a final blessing. Thought about Ephesians chapter 3. And so if you feel comfortable, uh, raise your hand so as to receive the blessing. Says this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.